So we are in the middle of a series, we actually started it last week, called Pray Different. Pray Different, and this is what we've been saying, prayer is unique, okay? Prayer is very unique, it's unique to me, and it might be unique to you guys, because there's so many different forms of prayer, I talked about some last week. I said my favorite is the shopping list prayer, like the checklist so you know what you're doing, you got it checked off. Others, maybe it's memorized prayer. For others, maybe it's like I'm bored of prayer, I'm intimidated by prayer, whatever it may be, but we've all, I know we all, have thrown up the Hail Mary prayer, right? It's like, God, help right now. I don't know what else to do. And then not only are there different forms, but everybody has their own kind of style, their own style of prayer. And I remember I was a young kid. I lived in Indiana, the great state of corn, right? And there's lots of corn there. Grew up in Indiana, and my grandparents were there, aunts and uncles and uh, cousins. So on Christmas, it was a party. So we'd all go over to my grandparents' house. And what we would do is before we'd open gifts, my grandpa, he would start reading the Christmas story, and then he'd pass it around to all the kids, and we would read sections of the Christmas story before we got to open gifts. But my grandpa, he was a pastor, and at that time he was retired, he read the Christmas story with us, and then we would pray before we got the gifts. Now, my grandpa's style is slow and sweet, okay? So you know what I'm talking about? You get praying, get praying. I love my grandpa. Oh, he's passed away now, and I love him to death, but on Christmas morning, it's like, Pappy, can we get the prayer moving here? The gifts are right in front of us. It's like they sit us all around our gifts, and then it's like, goes on for two hours. I'm like, dear, what's going on, you know? We all have different styles. I jokingly say that. I love my grandpa and how he prayed, but we all have different styles, right? Some you got slow, some you got fast, whatever it may be. Prayer is unique. Prayer is unique, and what we've been doing through this series and what we're going to do is look at a specific prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And we're saying, not only how does this look prayer in general, but how does this look personally for my prayer life? How are we going to walk through this and look at our own prayer life? And here's what Paul said, and I think he's saying throughout this passage, okay? We looked at this last week, that Paul is more focused on spiritual matters than worldly chatter. That in prayer, Paul would see spiritual matters is going to be greater than worldly chatter. Not that we can't pray for needs and circumstances and situations. Don't get me wrong, okay? It's great to pray for, but Paul approaches God and says, this is what I am in most desperate prayer form. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what the church needs. I'm going to pray for the spiritual matters of what's going on. Warren Wearsby, he says it this way, he does not ask, referring to Paul, God to give them what they don't have, but prays that God would reveal to them what they do have. That oftentimes we can lean into God in a way of praying for change my circumstance or I really need or want this. And Paul, what he's doing, he's like, I'm worshiping God for what we have in Christ and I want you all to sit on it and I'm praying that you all worship God the same way. That you're praying for these things. That what God gives you is astronomically more than you can imagine. And he goes through the first 14 verses of chapter one talking about those things. Now last week we started at this. We said that Paul... Paul prayed that God would give the church in Ephesus the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better, God better. This is how he said it. We said, he's asking the question, do I know about God or do I know God? And do I know about God and do I know God? And I use the illustration of a donut, which I wish I could use that illustration every week because it was amazing, right? But here's what I said. We had a donut up here, and I said this, that we can look at the donut, which was a glazed donut, and it was from Giant Eagle, and we had all the facts about the donut. We know about the donut, right? We all know about the donut, but not until I take a bite into the donut do I experience 
the donut? Do I have a different level of understanding of the donut? We said, we got to kind of look at this understanding of what Paul's praying in that way with God, saying that we can know a lot about God, and it's not bad to know about God. We need to know about God. That's what he reveals to us. But if that's where we leave it at and we don't take it next step of having relationship with God, then it's just a bunch of facts and it's useless, right? It's just a bunch of facts we carry around instead of the experiential relationship. That's where we started. We said, what if we prayed like that? That we shifted from change my circumstance to God, I want to know you better. I want to know you better. And we prayed for that for other people. What if the next generation, what if we prayed for them in that way? That God, they would grow up to know you better. They'd grow up to know you. What if we prayed for our friends and family? What if we prayed for those who don't know Jesus that we are in and around their lives? And we said, we want them to know you, God, relationally. How that would change it would change how we pray, but I believe how it can change the world and the relationships we have around us. Paul continues. So that was the first thing. He prays that we know him better. And then he continues in verse 18 of Ephesians 1. We're going to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Okay, Ephesians 1.18. This is what Paul has to say. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Okay, we're going to stop there because we have to stop there because there's something interesting, there's something necessary that we have to kind of diagnose and we have to dissect about this passage that Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart may be opened. And what he is saying is, I'm praying that you have spiritual sight. I'm praying that you have spiritual sight, that you go from being blind to seeing. Now, I was studying this and I was thinking about kind of like, has it ever happened where someone's gone from blind to being able to see? Okay, and I found this story, it was either National Geographic or something along those lines, of two sisters that lived in a country in Africa, I can't recall the country right now, and they were born blind. Okay, they were born blind, and their parents were very poor. It was a very poor family. Okay, so they didn't have much, and so this was just kind of how it was going to be. And it stated in the video that these girls, they were going to grow up, and if nothing was to be figured out about them being blind, they would grow up, and their family would basically use them as beggars because that's kind of all they were worth in that culture, unfortunately, right? And so there's some need to, like, how can we help them out? How can we do this? And there's an organization, and I don't know how they came about to figure this out, an organization that does eye surgery to, to those who might be blind that cannot afford it, they would give them sight. I'm not saying it's 2020 sight, but it gives them sight. And this organi- organization gets donations to do this. So this family hears about this organization. They bring them to the medical center where this organization is. So these girls walk in blinds. Right? They walk in blind. They don't know what anything looks like. They've lived their whole life this way, and their parents knew they needed some help, and so they walked in the medical center. They got approved to get this surgery done. That afternoon, they do their surgery, which takes like 30 minutes to an hour, which is kind of crazy to believe. They wrap them in bandages. Okay? They go to sleep that night. They wake up, and their parents bring them back to the medical center, and they unwrap the bandages. They unwrap and unwrap and unwrap until that first eye is unwrapped fully and you can see they kind of flinch back because of the light that's coming in. And then they unwrap the second one and you can see they kind of flinch back because the light, they've never seen light hit their eyes. And all of a sudden, okay, all of a sudden they just start looking around. They are wowed by all the things they're able to see now. 
And one of the girls goes over to the curtain and feeling the curtain like, oh, this is, what is this? And, and now I know what this feels like. And then goes, another girl goes over to the door and walks through the door out to the nature and seeing what's all around them. They've gained sight. It was an impactful video because these girls now can live seeing and knowing. Here's what I'd have you write down. Seeing leads to knowing. Seeing leads to knowing. It's very important because all of us, all of us at one time or another, one time or another, spiritually speaking, we're blind. And maybe you're sitting in this room and you're like, what? Maybe I'm blind. And at one point or another, we were all blind. What are you talking about? J.D. Greer puts it like this. Spiritual sight is how we perceive God. Without spiritual sight, you miss out on the most glorious display in the universe. And the tragedy is that you are spiritually blind. If you are spiritually blind, you have no idea that you're missing anything at all. Every one of us, every one of us is born spiritually blind because of our sin. Our sin is a barrier between a relationship with God us having relationship with God. So our sin keeps us from seeing. We're blind. We're just kind of walking around this earth trying to figure out what's going on until all of a sudden John 9 says, Jesus says this, I've come into this world so the blind can see. Until we see Jesus. We hold on to saying yes to Jesus. That's who gives us sight. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Okay, here's how I would illustrate it, okay? Like, how do I become spiritually, or how do I get spiritual sight? How, how does that work? Like, you just told me my sin is the spiritual blindness, right? It's dead in our transgressions. This is spiritually dead. This is how I would explain it. I've explained it a couple ways this way. Um, but basically, it's like a pendulum, Okay, like think of a pendulum. Okay, on one side, it's the weight of our sin. This understanding that I'm a sinner, that my sin, it gets in the way of a relationship with God, and kind of this understanding of what I have done has created that barrier. And then on the other side of the pendulum is the extent of God's grace, the amazing grace and love and forgiveness he has for us. Here's what I think life is, that we swing this pendulum of understanding the weight of our sin and the grace of God, the weight of our sin, and then we have an accurate view of what it means to say yes to Jesus. That if we lean on God's grace and say, well, I don't really need it because I'm not really that bad, right? I can do good enough, right? That's, we can't be on that side. Or you're on this side, you're like, I'm way over the edge, so that's never going to save me, right? It's this constant going back and forth, and when you see your sin and how much uh, you're a sinner and how much your sin gets in the way of relationship with God, and then you swing over and see God's grace through the cross, that's when you see Jesus, and you can say yes to Jesus. You say, yes, Jesus, I trust and believe in you, and I want to have a relationship with you, right? You've saved me. You've come and forgiven me. Here's what I think Paul is saying when he asks this or he writes this here. I think for some of us, the question is this, have you said yes to Jesus, because what he's going to be praying for, he's like, I want this stuff to be revealed to you because of the spiritual blessings you have in Jesus. So you have to start by saying yes to Jesus before you understand what I'm about to talk about. So for some of us, have you said yes to Jesus? You're sitting there, you might be thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I have. I don't know if I've said yes and given my life and believe and trust in Jesus. And here's what Paul's saying. He's like, today, if your eyes opened 
and start to know who Jesus is and what he gives you, the spiritual blessings, what you have possession of being a child of God, that God sent his one and only son so that he could die for our sins on the cross. So say yes to that, that you are in dead to your transgressions, you're spiritually blind, walking this earth without Jesus. So for some of us, that's where we need to start, saying yes to Jesus. For others of us, we've said yes to Jesus. And he's asking this question, are you falling more in love with Jesus? Are you falling more in love with Jesus? That you're like, yep, I, I saw that one time, that event, I, said, I prayed the prayer, I saw and I understand, and then it's kind of just become old hat, and I go to church and I do my thing and whatever it may be. And Paul's like, are you falling more in love with Jesus? Because he's praying for the hearts of the believers also. Like that he's praying for a church right now. He's like, I want you to see because it leads to knowing because then it leads to living. And then you get to live out loving God and loving others, the beauty of the gospel. So he's saying, have you said yes to Jesus? Some of us, that's where we need to start today because what I'm about to talk about, we'll have a lot of weight and hinging on understanding that. And then if you're a follower of Christ today, are you seeing what you possess by following Jesus? Right? The power of that. So Paul Considering spiritual sight, what does he want us to see? What does he want us to see? Ephesians 1.18, we're going to read the whole verse here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This is what I would have you write down. This is where we're going to land the whole time. Pray to know the hope. We talked about last week, pray to know him better. This week, pray to know the hope. When the eyes of the heart are opened, you start to see things. You start to see hope and understand what hope is and understand this certain hope in Jesus. And for some of us, that's the first time today we might be able to see that. For others, we need to be reminded of it. And for others, you're in a mess right now and you're like, I don't know where hope is. As I was studying this, I was thinking, in our culture, hope is an ambiguous term. It's kind of this ambiguous term that's hard to define. And so I looked at the history of thought of uh, basically what is hope to different cultures and different people? What would they define it as? And here we go. The history of hope. Greek philosophers, they would have said hope is weak. Don't lean on hope. Just kind of go out. It's weak. Jewish thought, Apostle Paul, Apostle John, writers in the Bible, they would have said hope is a rational faith. Right, we pull some thought from that, of course. 17th and 18th century philosophers, they would have said hope is a passion. And I believe that today's culture would define hope as a feeling. Hope is a feeling. And I found this article, this guy wrote, and he, uh, he had a rough year, okay? So it was like December, and he was writing about his year that he went through. Death and, and lots of just unique situations, circumstances that were, I would say, suffering, hardship that he walked through. And this is what he said, how to have hope in the midst of suffering. He summarized it this way. Lesson one, know that the suffering and that the moment in time will pass. Okay, we'd be like, Yep, we can start there, right? You got to know what's happening. Lesson two, recognize that you've dealt with ma- major challenges and suffering in the past and got through it. So you'd be like, yes, okay, we'd understand that. We'd probably start navigating it that way. Lesson three, though, your mind can create a world of possibility in the present, which will give you the positive momentum to create the future you want. Add to this moments of happiness and joy, and you will naturally strive forward with no doubt. 
what he does there is saying, he's like, you got to feel, and then it will create a positive movement in your life, and then you sprinkle in some happy thoughts and some joyful thoughts from the past, and that's how you have hope in the midst of suffering. It's this world of possibility that you have to muster up, and you have to figure out, and you have to collect so that you can get through it. It's a feeling. And here's the thing, hope As I was studying this, I was struggling with it because it's hard to define and it's hard to find. Hopelessness is everywhere. And for some of you sitting in here, it's in your world right now that your marriage is a mess. You're like, I don't know what to do. It's completely hopeless. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to run with it. it, I'm lost. For some of you, your job is joyless and you're like, there's no hope in it. I'm just stuck in the grind and I can't figure it out and it's just a mess. For some of you, maybe your family and friends, the relationships there, they're in futile. And you're just like, I don't know what to do. They're coming to me. They're angry with me. They're resentful. It's hopeless. I I don't know where to run anymore. We look at the world today. If you turn on the news, most of us would say what they highlight is the hopelessness of the world. What, What do we do? How do we navigate this? Where do we go from here? And it's interesting, as you look at Paul, he's currently sitting in prison writing this letter, probably one of the most hopeless situations that you can be in. It's interesting. So what do we do with this? How do we understand hope? Because in a culture of hopelessness, I think that we tend to try to find strategies to counteract the hopelessness. And so hope becomes a strategy. And today, the next point, hope does not equal a strategy. We got to start there. Hope does not equal a strategy because we have to redefine hope. Because I think hope, what we do is we see that there's hopelessness everywhere and then we lean on what I can bring to the table. And I got to create and I got to figure out and I got to build this hope and it's this feeling I muster up so that we can run into that. James 4 verses 13 and 14 say this, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. When hope is a strategy, or when I think I can build it on a strategy, it might disappear in the matter of seconds. So there's a couple things I was thinking of as uh, we were talking about hope is not a strategy. Okay, what are different strategies we might lean on? First thing is this, hope is not based on my ability. Hope should not and is not based on my ability, right? I'm a big football fan, and we're in the midst of football season right now, but in April, last, well, it's coming April and last April, they'll have an NFL draft. And before the NFL draft, they have something called the NFL Combine. And hundreds of college athletes, college football players will come to the combine and they will do different, uh, different things so that their abilities are seen, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's speed drills, whatever it may be, so that they can bolster their NFL draft status. And here's the thing. Every single one of those athletes, football players, will come in hoping on their ability that that one scout, that one GM sees the ability they have and hope that that gets me onto an NFL roster. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If I lose my ability, then I lose my hope. Because ability can go just like that. Because that player that's running the 40-yard dash can tear his ACL just like that. And all of a sudden, all hope is lost. So we can't base it on ability, but we also, we can't base it on resources. 
Hope is not based on resources. History lesson for you history buffs, back in the 1920s, America was booming. It was the roaring 20s, right? Jazz was picking up, money was flowing, good things were happening. You all know 1929, the Great Depression hit. You go from one set of time to the next in a matter of weeks, right? Resources are going to come and go, and all of us know that. If you've lived life long enough, you know that sometimes we're on this side and sometimes we're on this side, a little skinnier than we'd like to be. So hope cannot be based on resources. Hope is not based on optimism. It's not based on optimism, right? Little Annie said, the sun will come out tomorrow. It doesn't in Ohio, okay? It just doesn't in Ohio, right? You know this to be true on a real, real, really true because here's the fact. You go through something of suffering. You go through something that's no fun. The next day, it doesn't automatically get better. The sun doesn't always come out the next day. For some of you, you're walking journeys of 40 years plus. Some of you are walking four weeks, 40 months, whatever it may be, and you're like, I'm in the midst of it, and the sun hasn't come out. So we can't base it on optimism. The last thing, hope is not based on morality, because here's the question. When is good enough good enough? Because we never know when good enough is going to allow us to be good enough to base our hope in that. We all have hoped in one of those things at one point or another. I was a high school football player. I hoped that my abilities would get me somewhere. Uh, they didn't football-wise, right? We've all been there, and you might be sitting there right now. So what is Paul saying, and how does he run with this? This is what I would write down. Hope equals a certainty. It's not a strategy, it's a certainty, right? What's he talking about? J.D. Greer, who is a pastor, and I quoted him already, he says this, biblical hope, biblical hope, by contrast, is not something you are unsure about. It is something you are very sure about. That just doesn't happen yet, but something that you look forward to with great anticipation that literally reshapes your entire outlook on life. That when the Bible, when authors in the Bible write about hope, Okay, it's a certainty of something to come. That's what it's based on. It's not this whimsical, wishful hope, but it's a certainty and it's grounded in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and that he rose again. That's where the hope is centered around and based in. The writer of Hebrews, we're going to look at a passage here, the writer of Hebrews kind of illustrates this in a perfect way. And he's writing in this passage right before what we're going to look at about Abraham. Okay, Abraham is this Old Testament legend, and God gives him promises that is, uh, you can see, played out in Genesis, okay? And he gives him promises, so it talks about the promises that Abraham gets and the oath that God sets forward for him. And then he writes this, the, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19, in a different version, the NLT, I think, states well the illustration that uh, the writer of Hebrews has. Why don't we go to the next slide there? This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. This hope is Jesus. This anchor is what he's saying is the illustration of this hope, that it's strong and trustworthy. So what is he saying? So I thought we'd illustrate it because he kind of teed up that one. So we'd illustrate it. So just imagine, okay, got this rope here. 
It's not a perfect illustration, but we'll make it work. Uh, we got this rope here. Imagine that uh, your life is a ship, okay? It's a ship, and so you're kind of sailing the seas of your life, and you have this ship, and on every ship, you have an anchor, okay? Or I'd hope you'd have an anchor, right? Every ship has an anchor, and it usually looks something like this. Now, let's just imagine, because we know the seas are bumpy and rough and stormy, right? That life is just like that. It is. You get storms that come through, you get riptides, you get waves, winds that you're not expecting that can last for a long time, that can last for a short time, whatever it may be. Now let's imagine this. Our life is a ship and we each have an anchor. For some of us in here, for some of us in here, this is the chain, the rope we let down, and we're letting it down because the storm is happening and the, the ship is kind of bouncing back and forth with waves, but there's nothing on the end. I would call us the hopeless, the hopeless group, right? Where you just nothing, you're like, it's not worth it. Life's not worth it. Like, there's no hope, so why would I even try? And so you lean into drinking, you lean into sex, entertainment, vacation, whatever it may be to get it off your mind. It's hopeless to go forward. I don't know where to go with it. So you just let it down, right? Another group of us, we'd be the hopeful wishers, right? The, the, the whimsical, wishful hope that it's going to happen. I would illustrate it like this. It's kind of like, like a pool flotation device, right? It's like one of those duckies that float around the pool and you like tie that to the end. And you're like, I just really hope this is going to work out. And so what you do is you put your hope in people around you, maybe your marriage, maybe those that you're close to, maybe it's circumstances, whatever it may be. And you're like, I really hope my job does this. And all of a sudden that flotation device gets picked up by the wind and it goes off. And it's like, what happened? I was putting my hope in, it's gone. What Paul is talking about and what the Hebrews, our writer of Hebrews is talking about is this certain hope. That on the ends of this chain rope is this anchor that sticks into the ground. When the storm comes and the wind picks up and the waves pick up, the ship is going to kind of like go and it's going to feel it, but it's not going to move to a different ocean or a different sea or a different area, and it's not going to topple over because there's a certainty in that anchor that's sticking there. The storm, it doesn't like, like fan away the storm. Like the storm's still going to happen. The winds are going to still hit. The waves are still going to come. But what the writer of Hebrews says, it's trustworthy and it's powerful that we can trust God when we put our hope in Jesus, that certain hope, that anchor into the ground for our ship, our life. We can trust him, and we know it's going to be powerful enough for whatever comes our way. Rick Warren writes this, Hope is not based on what I feel, but what he reveals. Not based on my emotion, but what he has spoken. That's what it's based on. Not how I'm feeling in the moment, but based on who God is and what he's written. So what, what does this hope reveal to us? What is Paul writing when he writes hope? What does that reveal to us, how we can trust it and how we know about it? First thing is this, a certainty or that hope, which is a certainty in the calling. Certainty in a calling. He writes, hope to which he has called you in verse 18. There's a certain hope in this calling. In Ephesians 1.4, earlier in this chapter, writes it like this. It should be on the screen. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He has chosen us. That God has sent Jesus and says, I want a relationship with you. I want to give you grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And I've chosen and called you to accept that. It's nothing that we've done. I cannot be good enough. I cannot do enough to have a relationship with God. There's nothing. 
None of my moral standings, none of my good acts, they don't hold up. They won't ever get me there. But God said, no, no, I've called you, I've chosen you, and you can be certain in that. This is how I'd illustrate it. I, in December, am going to be finishing my seminary. Praise the Lord. Uh, we're almost done there, so schooling for me is close to the finish. And I do not plan on getting my doctorate, okay, because I'm not smart enough to do that. But let's just hypothetically, let's hypothetically assume that I wanted to get my doctorate, okay? wanted to get my doctorate. And I told you, and I came up to you, and I said this. I'm interested in my doctorate. I actually called Harvard University, right? And their doctoral program is, uh, you know, above the rest. It's the best. And I called them, and I told them I'm done with my master's degree. I called them up and I said, I'm done. This is my GPA. This is how smart I am. You're going to want me in your program. Because not only will I bring you educational excellence, but I'll probably increase the good-lookingness of the campus, right? And then you'll just want my face everywhere. You know you want me and how good I've done in my master's and all that stuff. You want me. You would look at me and be like, you fool. Why would you do that, right? Because you know and I know it would be foolish of me to call Harvard and say, you want me. You want me, this guy from some city in Ohio, Harvard wants. It'd be silly, right? You might be like, you're not smart enough, Joel, so don't do it, right? It just doesn't make sense. But it'd be very different. It'd be very different. Ooh, we're about falling off there. Very different. <laughs> I get a little excited here, you know? Very different if Harvard called me up, said, we saw that you finished your master's, and we would love for you to jump into our doctoral program. We'd love for you to be a part of the campus and be a part of the Harvard family. It'd be a very different circumstance. It'd be so different. And it would change my future and present. It would change the outlook. I have a doctoral degree now. It might change the career that I'm in. It might change whatever it would be, right? It would change my present. I'm a Harvard student. I'm a Harvard student. Changed my persona in a way. Do you know who graduated from Harvard? And I'm in that group. It changes my future and present. And God's saying, I've called you. There's nothing. You can't call me and say, I've got all this stuff. I got it. And we can have a certainty in that. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 says it like this. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and mortality to light through the gospel. It's powerful because here's what, here's what uh, Paul's saying in Timothy, but also what God is saying to us. Hey, I have called you. I want you to accept that. I want you to know about being saved and having eternal life in me. I want you to know about the purpose and meaning I give you by saying yes to me. I want you to know about life forever and life on this earth. I want you to know that death is defeated, sin is gone. I want you to know about that and that I give you that and there's a certainty in that. There ain't no certainty in our morality because when is good enough, good enough? He said, trust me. That's where your hope should lie is that I've called you and I love you and you should trust in me in that. The second thing I would write down, okay, so we see when the storm starts to hit the ship, we look down at our anchor and say, he's called us. He loves us. He, he wants a relationship with us. The second thing is this, a certainty in an identity. A certainty in an identity. It's interesting he writes uh, in that verse, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And this is what he's saying. He's not saying that our inheritance, we looked at uh, a sermon series a couple months ago, Romans 8, and it said our inheritance as children of God. That's not what he's talking about. We are God's inheritance. That should baffle and astound us. 
that God looks at us and says, you all are my inheritance. You said yes to Jesus, you're in my inheritance. I get to spend eternity with you, and I love you. And that leads me to think, what other identities does God give us that we can look down to the anchor and say, this is who he's called us. This is who we are. We're, in his, her- we're his inheritance. And he also says we're children of God. First John, First John says this. If we go to the next slide. Three, see what great love the fathers lavish on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're children of God. We're a friend of Jesus. John 15, 15 says this, I I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. He also says we're members of Christ's body. We're members of Christ's body. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are a body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Lastly, we're God's workmanship. Ephesians 2, 10 says this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That when I know who I am, then I'll know what to do. When I know who I am, then I'll know what to do. When I look down to the anchor and it's lodged in there, it's a certain anchor that's Jesus, gives me my identity. When the storm is hitting, when I look down to that, I know whose I am, then I'll know what to do. It was interesting. I didn't, I happenstance ran across this article and uh, just by chance did, and it lined up with the thought here. I ran across it because of this title. The title is this, The Selfie That Revealed I Was a Stolen Baby. Okay, it just intrigued me. I'm like, what in the world is this getting at, right? It's kind of weird, it's kind of unique. So I clicked on it and read the article. And this is basically what happened. There's a 17-year-old, she's now in like her 30s. They wrote an article and she was 17 at the time. And at the time, she went to a new school, and she was in the hall, and she ran across this other girl. It was kind of younger than her, but they looked similar. And so they became friends through talking, and they actually enjoyed some of the same things. Started, they started hanging out. And some of their friends, their mutual friends, said, man, you guys really look alike. Like, you really look similar. It's kind of crazy. And so they just kind of, you know, oh, okay, well, it's just happen chance. They start hanging out. And one girl had the other girl over, I don't know, the sleepover, just hanging out, and they took a selfie. They took a selfie, and they looked at it, and they're like, wow, it's kind of creepy how much we look alike, right? So the 17-year-old went back to her family and said, hey, look at this picture. And they're like, yeah, you kind of look like her. It's crazy, you know? The other girl who was younger went back to her family, showed them the picture, and her mom and dad said, do you know what her birth date is? And she's like, no. They're like, ask her next time you see her. So they came back, and throughout the story, to save you all the details, they found out that this girl, this 17-year-old, at three days old in the hospital, was stolen by another lady. And for her whole life, 17 years of her life, she had lived under this lady's house thinking that this was her mom and thinking that this was her dad and thinking this was her extended family and thinking this was her life. What was interesting, at 17 years old, they found out this other family said, no, 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 wait, 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 we think that you're our daughter. And through DNA tests, they found out it was. And these two girls who started as friends actually ended up being sisters crazy story. It was a true story. Crazy, crazy, crazy story. But here's the thing. How sad and heartbreaking is it that that 17-year-old went through all of her life to that point thinking she was someone to find out in a matter of seconds that she really wasn't that person and that her family really wasn't 
who she thought it was, and her culture and her everything changed from there. And I think this is what Paul's saying and what God wants us to grab onto. He's saying, you have a certain hope in your identity. You know who you are. It's not going to be like one moment you're this person to me and one moment you're not. You're a child of God one moment when you're good and you're my servant the next. You're one moment a friend and one moment an enemy. Like it's not going to happen the way. You have a certainty in your identity. It's powerful. So when the storm comes, the anchor is there to remind me who I am. When the waves crash, the anchor is there to remind me I'm a child of God. When the riptide comes, the anchor is there to remind me I'm God's workmanship. So where do we go from here? We have a certainty in the calling. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He's come after us. Certainty, identity, what he has made us through Christ. This is why I would say two things, then we're done. We have a certainty that clarifies the present. We have a certainty that clarifies the present in two ways, okay? In two ways. The first way is this. In my sufferings, in my hardships, in my hard times, the certainty clarifies that. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, this unseen certainty. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is unseen is eternal. He keeps pushing in this passage, there is a future glory. That what you are walking through now, it's pushing you towards this future glory and it's making you more like Christ right now and it's pushing you towards what will become of you in heaven when you stand face to face with Jesus. There's this future glory involved that in the midst of my sufferings, I have this hope and it clarifies how I navigate sufferings and it clarifies how I navigate hardships, that there is something in the future and it's making me more like Christ in the moment, that there's this inward groaning, right? This outward suffering. The second thing I would say is in my temptations and sin, there's certainty that clarifies the present. C.S. Lewis says this, Uh, we're like kids who are playing in a mud puddle, okay? And your parents are like, let's go to the beach. And the kids kids are like, but I want to play in the mud puddle. It's interesting. Maybe you've been there as a parent. I've not yet. But I think there's a powerful point that in our sin, we'll sit in the mud puddle and we'll enjoy it so much and think it's bringing fulfillment and think it's bringing joy and this is what I want. And God's like, I got a beach for you. Come enjoy the beach. Like, well, this is kind of fun. And I enjoy this. And the mud's kind of... You know, it's warm and it's nice, and God's like, no, 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 come. That in the midst of our sin and our temptation, oftentimes we can unhook the hope. We forget the hope that we have that pushes us through what we might be tempted with. We fill ourselves with junk instead of God's mercy and grace. We'll fill ourselves with unhealthy relationships instead of finding value in Jesus. We'll fill ourselves with accolades instead of finding worth in Jesus. We'll fill ourselves with money and things, and I want and I want, instead of leaning on the future hope that is Jesus, living Jesus and what he has for us. We lose sight of this certain hope. We lose sight of the certain hope, and so in an essence, we'll pull up the anchor. We don't need Jesus anymore. I can do this myself. We start hitting rocks. We start hitting sand, whatever it may be, and it's like, oh, right? He's like, trust in me. Hook me. The second thing I would say underneath this, certainty changes my future. Certainty changes my future. I was going to read a passage for this one because I think that John, the writer of Revelations, lays it out really well what we have certain in the future. There's a powerful, powerful passage that John writes in Revelations 21 
verses 1 through 7. It'll be on the screen here as we move forward. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This was John writing kind of the revelation that was given to him for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. How powerful is that image that those in Christ are victorious, that he says there's a new heaven and a new earth, that we get to dwell with God in this new heaven, new earth, that we're his people, and God is giving himself to us, and there will be no more tears, mourning, suffering, death. He says, you can trust this. It's true. And if you've said yes to Jesus, you will inherit this. It changes my future outlook from death to life. And that's, I want to live that life. I want to live that eternally. It's powerful. So certain hope clarifies our present and it changes our future. How does that look in prayer? How does that look in prayer? So I've been saying even last week, it's like we went through all this stuff and it's really neat. It's really cool. But how do we pray this out? How, how do we make this kind of like physical in the sense of how do I speak this to God? What should I be thinking about in this? How does this work? How is a certain hope praying for others? And this is, uh, I would point us to a passage in Daniel. Okay, I would point us to a passage in Daniel because I think out of that, it gives us a step to understand how we should be praying in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of uh, situations and people. Okay, Daniel 3 in Daniel 3, we see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Classic Bible story there. And what is happening is the, the group of Israelites, okay, the nation of Israel is in captivity. And they're in captivity, and King Nebuchadnezzar is now ruling over Babylon, and he built this statue of gold, okay? I'm not sure where you get all that gold at and why he would build a statue with it, but he's built this statue of gold. He said, everybody has to bow down. Everybody has to bow down and worship this statue. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, nope, we're not doing it. We have one true God, and that's all we serve, and that's all we worship. And so it gets to the point where they have to bow down, and they don't bow down. So King Nebuchadnezzar comes up and says, you realize you're going to be punished for this, right? If you don't bow down, we're going to throw you in a fiery furnace, seven times hotter than the furnace should be. They're like, we're not going to. So he's like, I'll give you one more chance. They don't. So him and the guards, they take them to the fiery furnace, okay? And King Nebuchadnezzar is talking to them, and this is their reply. Daniel 3, verses 16 and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. First off, it's not the sermon, but that's bold. That's bold courageous, and that is, that is faith at its finest right there. We serve a God that can save us from this. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Verse 18, but even if he does not. 
What if that became our prayer? Right? It's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. You're like, what? what is he talking about? But even if my circumstance doesn't get better, that I trust and have faith in God, my anchor, Jesus, and who he says I am and what he's called me to, that that's where I lean into. That's where my hope is. Even when my circumstance, even when the people around me may not get better, even when everything's just absolutely miserable or hopeless around me, what if that became my prayer? What if that became our prayer for each other? That we're walking through junk, we're walking through suffering, walking through hardship. What if we prayed that for others? But even if not, that they would have hope in you, Jesus, and a certain hope that their anchor would be let down and be in you. What if we prayed that for the next generation? What if? Because now we know media and technology is everywhere, and so our kids are seeing the hopelessness in this world, right? They're seeing it, and our world is like, just build up some feelings and emotions. You'll get through it. It'll be okay. What if we, we prayed for them and said, build your hope in the certainty of Jesus, that even if the world doesn't get any better, which it may not, right? Even if it gets worse, that your hope is built into that. And we had a next generation of kids and students at this campus and around the area that were growing up to have a certainty in Jesus even when their world is falling apart. What if we prayed that for each other, is specifically those who are in situations of hurt and pain? What if it didn't become change their circumstance, change their circumstance, change their circumstance? What if it became but even if that they would have a hope and lean into you, God? What if that became our prayer for our three? those who don't know Jesus, God, that they would see the certainty of hope in Jesus, that they would run to you, that the hopelessness and, and this hopeful thinking, that they wouldn't lean on that, they would lean on the certainty of who you are, even if the world around them is falling apart. What if? What if that became our prayer? How would that change? How would that change the relationships we have? How would that change the, dra- the drastic change that would take from going from change my circumstances and woe is me to how am I praying for others and that others would not just lean into, not lean into the circumstances awful and I want to pray for it, but even in the midst of this awful circumstance, I'm praying that I lean into the hope of Jesus, the living hope, which we're going to sing about here in a minute. Okay? That's our challenge today. That's what Paul is talking about. Why don't we pray and then next week we'll continue the conversation.